0: With more than 500 programs a year, there's never a dull moment at the Commonwealth Club. If you're a fan of this podcast and you like hearing new and provocative discussions with the most interesting people in the world, consider showing your support by joining the Commonwealth Club and ensuring that the conversations never end. Visit CommonwealthClub.org special to get special rates on membership. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this virtual Commonwealth Club program. My name is Marisa Lagos. I'm a correspondent for KQED's Politics and Government Desk. I'm very happy to be here tonight with Dan Pfeiffer, one of the co hosts of Pod Save America. Dan was one of President Obama's longest serving advisors, working on two presidential campaigns and spending six years in the White House as communications director and senior advisor to the president. His new book, Untrumping America. Un- A plan to make America a democracy again, I can't even say the word anymore, was released earlier this year and quickly became a New York Times bestseller. In Untrumping America, Pfeiffer argues if Democrats don't mount an aggressive response in 2020 that recognizes who Republicans are and what they've done, American democracy as we know it won't survive in this moment, and a conservative shrinking mostly white minority will govern the country for decades. If you're watching along with us and have a question you'd like me to ask Dan, please put it in the text chat on YouTube or the comments on Facebook, and we'll be getting to those later in the program. Thanks, Dan, for joining us.
1: Well, thanks for being here. Thanks for doing this.
0: So I know you have a book to discuss. We were joking a little before. Um, it came out in, I think, February and or March, and I read it then, and now it's been like 10 years in one, yes. Yes. <laughs> in one year. <laughs> um, but I feel like before we get into the meat of that, we got to talk about the news this week. Um, you yes. might have heard. I think we have a vice presidential candidate. It
1: Appears that way. Yes.
0: So, I mean, you guys have been mulling this and talking about it, as have I, and other people in our line of work for a really long time. But tell me just like your immediate gut reaction. Did you call it? Did you know?
1: I I did not know in advance. I did uh, as part of Positive America. I did a three-part mini series with my friend and vice presidential process expert Alyssa Mastromonica about the vice presidential process. It was it was mainly it was backwards looking about how it works and like right. what how the decisions are made. But at the end of the last episode, we each made a guess as to who we thought it would be. Alyssa picked Susan Rice, I picked Kamala Harris. So this is actually the first political prediction I have gotten right since before Donald Trump was elected, so I feel pretty good about that. I mean, it. look, I think it's a It's a great choice. The reason it was a great choice was completely on display today in, at the event that Biden and Senator Harris did together in Delaware. She it, passes every test for being qualified for having, for being a, a great candidate. Uh, on the trail, be a great vice president. And you can really, like, the vice presidential selection process is so just, like, grinding, and we bring people nitpick, and they track the private flights everywhere, and you kind of lose str- you lose track of the big thing. And just see, even though people thought for a very long time, like Betty Markets, political predictors, podcasters like myself, thought Kamala Harris was the most likely pick, the excitement from all across the party and the country when she was picked speaks to something that really was powerful. And, you know, people in my life who are not uh, super involved in politics were incredibly excited by this pick.
0: So you mentioned the podcast, and I just want to say I did tell Alyssa if she wanted to join us tonight, I would have been happy to have her.
1: <laughs> yes, as, as I would have as well.
0: But, I mean, a lot of what you guys talked about in that podcast was, like, the process of both picking and then rolling out a yep. vice president candidate, um, and you mentioned like yeah, if, if you're a Twitter dork like we are, like people were tweeting flight tracker information the last few days to see like who was actually going to Delaware to talk to Biden. Obviously, there's been like a slew of Oppo research and different kind of bombs. But before we get into some of that stuff, I just want to like ask you like how do you think this compares to past processes in terms of the actual choosing of Kamala, and then maybe you know the how they rolled it out, but Th- which seemed is like COVID everything. Yeah. Sure.
1: It's, co- it's COVID affected. Yes. Yeah. Uh, look, I mean the, the biggest test of your vice presidential selection process is do you get to make the news yourself? And they announced it like the, no, no one, no reporter beat him to it. There was no leak. And even in Obama's in 08 for his, which is seen generally by a lot of people as the best run process that actually leaked. In advance uh the cnn actually beat our text message uh to announce it out and joe biden got to make the news on his own so that's a real tribute to their process and i can't imagine the logistical challenges of doing this in covid although maybe it's easier because they just did a zoom call as opposed to like sneaking or sneaking senator harris in through the back of a building you know by going to a to an airport but yeah i think their process seemed like ended I think it ended obviously with a great choice, but they were able to conduct it mostly in secrecy. There were, obviously was a lot of turbulence, but I think that wasn't really related to the campaign uh other than you know there were you know, like the Chris Dodd comments about Kamala Harris but that like that you know, Chris Dodd obviously is a representative of the campaign and but the campaign very quickly distanced themselves from that, and then you no one has ever never seen or heard from Chris Dodd again, so uh,
0: no no, no, that's uh, not I true. He did come to... out and say one nice thing about her I think
1: oh he did okay, good good good, yes, yes. That's yes, what what we needed in this process was a 70 something uh former motion picture lobbyist, yes. Uh the but I, like yeah, all kinds of yeah, you know, not not a, it, it is not not a uh not someone who speaks to the moment we are in. Um but I think to the Biden campaign's credit, they ended up with a great pick and they ran a, they ran a really good process in a very tough situation and people are really excited and every and it's a unifying pick. That, you know, use every All every politician from every side of the you know every wing of the party was very enthusiastic behind this, and you know it's always I remember this with when Obama became the nominee. Like we knew Obama was going to be the nominee, but when a black man named Barack Hussein Obama actually accepted the nomination, it was this incredibly powerful thing that you can't you can know it's coming intellectually, but before it but until it happens, you can't truly feel it emotionally. And you saw that today from the from the response from women black women the asian community the the indian community just like speaking to the truly historic moment and it felt very powerful
0: i mean yeah even in san francisco everyone like put their knives down and is excited even if they have <laughs> yeah. you know historically been within the city's very like you know shades of blue fighting you know they're all like okay this is good we can do this i mean what about before when we can move on because i know like not everybody likes this process stuff as much as we might, but I read that they interviewed like 11 people. I mean, a lot of the stuff you and Alyssa talked about was how you usually kind of narrow it down to a three or four. It does sound like this was a pretty broad list for until the end.
1: Yeah. It seems like they, from, you know, it's always hard to tell with these sort of po you know, ex post facto at, uh TikTok stories to what is really, really happened. he, He cast a very wide net, apparently as many as 20 people in the beginning. 11 people went through, it seems like the first round of the process. And then it seems like four or more went through the more vigorous part where the, where the, the, I think the investigating gets a little more uh, not, like in terms of the financial records and things you turn over. But, yeah, he cast a very wide net. I think it's the right thing to do, because if you had probably asked Joe Biden on the very first day of this process and we said you have to pick someone right now, he probably would have picked Kamala Harris for every for all the reasons we've talked about, uh, including and in addition to the relationship that she had with his son, um, because we know how much that means to Joe Biden, but going through the process was important to make sure you end up in the right spot. And, you know, it's, it was a wide ranging and well-run process and I think it's to their credit.
0: So the one thing about the process that some folks weren't super thrilled about was the kind of like battle royale that was created in the media between women because we Mm -hmm. knew it was going to be a woman. A lot of oppo research dumped out there about Karen Bass, um, formerly sort of low profile congressman from la a lot of salivating from republicans over the possibility of susan rice given that you've been in that world and you know i'm not expecting you to tell any secrets here but like do you think a do you think that oppo was like coming from like the kamala camp or, or or the other potential candidates or could some of it have actually come from the biden campaign like is there ever a moment where you're just like we'd rather get this out now and see how it does
1: I don't I think it's highly unlikely it came from the Biden campaign, because just the way this process works is it's so walled off from anyone else. And it's really attorneys. It's under a lock and key. There's a thousand NDAs signed because it's so important to protect the privacy of the people involved. So I think it is. I cannot possibly. I would be shocked to find out that the Biden campaign floated a trial balloon about that event that Karen Bass attended 10 years ago at the Scientology Center or whenever that was. Um,
0: that one was kind of the weakest
1: I, look, of the attacks anyway. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, look, I think that there, like, there's been a lot of debate about the merits of Biden declaring at the front end that he was going to pick a woman, right? And one of the consequences of that is you end up in a process that pits women against each other, and particularly in the context we're currently in, about whether Biden was going to pick a, a Black woman, right? And so now you're pitting Black woman against Black woman and woman against woman, and that I think there's real like I understand why people wanted this process to end as soon as possible, to the extent that there was an there were two I think the reason Biden made that announcement other than just sort of debate strategy at that time was he had already come to that decision in his mind, and imagine if we'd spend the last three months having a debate about whether Biden was going to pick a woman right and i and i think especially if he'd already decided it, but I also think that a whole bunch of of Really talented women politicians got a lot uh, – became national figures in this process. You know, Karen Bass has been in Congress for a long time, was not particularly well-known outside of uh, California and Congress. Susan Rice, seen in a very different light now, Val Demings, Keisha Lance Bottoms, a whole bunch of people. And I think while there were certainly – I'm certainly sensitive to – or try to be sensitive to the challenge – You know, to how painful that process was at the time. If there was any upside to it, it was that, uh, that the – that these women are national figures now and I think we'll be, have pl- bigger platforms to do bigger things um, in the future.
0: Well, Kamala, unlike some of those other folks was pretty well known. I think a, yes. lot, of, a lot of the oppo books had already been dumped on her, at least by the Democrats. Yeah. And, and um, maybe I'll fold in this now because we're on this issue. A, an audience member wants to know if you feel more optimistic about Biden's chances because of uh, this pick.
1: I do, I do. I think uh, it's going to bring energy to the ticket. It, I, I, you know, and I think you know Biden has been underperforming with Black voters. He is actually at the level or a little bit below where Hillary Hillary Clinton was in 2016. Now he is winning because he is overperforming with a bunch of other voters, most uh, most notably um, older with white seniors. Um, But like, hopefully, this can bring some energy, some additional energy to the ticket. And I think she's, I mean, she's an incredibly talented campaigner. There's I think there's real chemistry between the two of them. And so I think, you know, there are five moments that matter in a presidential campaign, VP selection convention and three debates. And I think Biden, at least 36 hours in, has nailed that first part. So, uh, he, you know, he's one fifth of the way through the gauntlet he's going to have to do to, to win.
0: Yeah. Speaking of the VP debate, like how excited are people like you?
1: Well, I am someone who takes expectations management very seriously. So everyone who's – like every Democrat is out there being like, can't wait till she uh, verbally decapitates Mike Pence. Uh, Like I have great confidence she will do well in that debate, but I think think we should tone it back a little bit, try to manage expectations because I saw this happen. Now, I would never in 100 years compare Kamala Harris and John Edwards. But one of the – the one similarity was when they were both picked, like one of the pros in that case – in the arguments was they will do a great job in the debate. And people spent no four – talking about how John Edwards, silky, you know, silver-tongued trial lawyer with a whole bunch of other really serious problems, but would do so well in the debate against Cheney, and he lost that debate. Now, I think Kamala Harris will win that debate, but as Democrats, my advice to people would be to try to – let's puff up Mike Pence's debating skills a little bit uh, before we – because we also – one other thing we know from watching the debates is the debates, it is very hard – the way debates are scored as gladiator contests often dovetail with a lot of misogynistic language about women and women of color in particular. And so, the sort of zingers that would get, you know, a, man, a white man in particular applauded for in a debate stage could be treated very differently by the press coverage when it comes to Kamala Harris. So, this is this is not an for all of her tremendous talents as a debater and a prosecutor. This is. Uh, a very difficult situation should we be going into, and so I'm um, for expectations. Man. I'm don't worry, I'll be tuning in, but uh, I want to, I want to, I want to modulate expectations so that we, so that uh, Mike Pence not falling asleep in the debate isn't considered a win.
0: Right, and also to your point, like Pence, you know, is comes off as a really nice guy, and I think that you know, as much as love as Kamala's has gotten on the left for. You know her questioning of Barr and former AG Jeff Sessions and and Kavanaugh. There, if you're talking about like swing voters or people, there that that whole like framing of sexism and could could really come in. So I mean, you're right. Obviously, that this has really coalesced a lot of people around Biden and you know Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren have all given Kamala their support. Um, but there's still people on the left who are mad. I I, I noticed a uh, Politico quote by uh, Norman Solomon, saying that we might be looking at 12 years of neoliberal power at the top of the Democratic Party, um, which struck me as maybe a little bit overstated about who come, like, and and, it, and it, what it really made me think of is, like, the, the challenge that it feels like Trump's campaign is already having defining her and Biden, which is, like, are they crazy lefties, or are they, you know, not... I mean, in Joe Biden's case, you know, Sleepy Joe or not not there. How do you think Democrats should be thinking about sort of countering both the attacks from the left on her police record, but also, you know, kind of thinking about how to deal with the scattershot approach. But Trump keeps winning it, a lot of stuff. So it's not like it doesn't yeah. always
1: work. Yeah, it's really like the Trump campaign is completely confused about I mean, just generally confused, but specifically confused about about Kamala's record because they want, to at the, they want to do two things at the same time. They want to paint her and Joe Biden as re, radical left, defund the police, Antifa super soldiers. And they want to go to some segment of black voters, Latino voters, young progressive Democratic voters and advertise to them that Kamala's record, you know, Kamala, Kamala the cop sort of 2020 Democratic primaries, And you can't do both. Right. That then then neither of those arguments will work. Well, I think they just have to do is continue doing like doing what they have been doing, which is staying focused on the biggest crisis facing the country and showing that they are the ones to take it on. And Trump cannot and will not do that job. And you don't really have to chase him down all the rabbit holes. Um, Just I think to the Biden campaign's great credit, they have been very, very disciplined about sticking to their message and picking when to respond and when not to respond. And I suspect that this this similar approach will be done here.
0: I don't wanna like I, I mean, again, I don't I don't want to understate like how much support I think Kamala is getting, but part of what Democrats, I think most political observers think need to do is to really excite the base, to excite young people, people of color. And there are people out there, I'm seeing them in my Twitter feed and Facebook feed who are who feel like this is kind of again the same sort of establishment democrats. I mean, how does how do people, you know, and these are people I think that are more likely to stay home than they are to vote for Trump. So, how how do you thread that needle right now?
1: Well, I think it like there's some there are some folks you're just not going to get, right? And so like particularly some of the loudest voices on Twitter, there's a whole group of people who, you know, sort of have sort of branding themselves in the Bernie or bust category, and you're probably not going to get them. I think with the overwhelming majority of available voters to you, the best thing you can do is, one, some of what Biden has been doing, which he he moved significantly left on climate change, and that was a very significant thing. And I think that – and he's done it, and he's going to have messengers who are going to help him sell that, and the fact that AOC is in charge of his climate task force is very important. That Bernie Sanders is going to be out there making the case for it. Like, I don't know that Joe Biden can go to these young progressive voters who are disenchanted with the primary process and how it went and that he himself is going to sell them on this. But the fact that he has Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, AOC, Ayanna Pressley, Jamal Bowman and a whole bunch of other people who have real credibility with a lot of those voters making that case is going to help.
0: One last thing on Kamala, and then let's move on to some other 2020 stuff. But, you know, one of the things that we'd all been kind of thinking about and waiting for who watched the Obama presidency and that relationship closely was, you know, what kind of vice president was he looking for in terms of their relationship? And he made really clear today that he had made the same commitment to her that Obama made to him, which is, I want you to be the last person in the room. I'm just curious, like, what does that tell you about Biden and kind of their relationship? Because... A lot of vice presidents maybe get a promise made on the campaign trail and are not as happy with how things work out once they're in the White House. Right.
1: Well, I think, I mean, Biden, obviously, more than probably anyone who has ever run for this office, was going to take this decision seriously in that respect. Um, and it's just me, like, knowing him, just the relationship with Obama and how Obama lived after those commitments meant so much to Biden personally, and they became very, very good friends as a part of it, like, you know... Biden is, you know, although Kamala was also inducted as an honorary Biden today. That Biden was, Obama was an honorary Biden pretty early in that presidency, and I think it, it says the foundation of the Obama Biden relationship was trust, and that they could, they trusted that they that Biden could give Obama un, unvarnished advice, and Biden Obama could talk to Biden, and Biden would keep it in his confidence, and that their that their Interest would never diverge. Right. Like one of the the hallmark elements of the entire year. Sometimes Biden would make mistakes. Sometimes he would say things that, you know, he would get out in front of us or he'd make a gaffe. But we always knew that that was just a mistake and not Biden putting his own political ambitions above Obama's. And so what that says to me is that he and Biden understands why Like he was very explicit. about that. That's why he didn't form a PAC early on prepare for a potential 2016 run. He, he, he felt his best way to do whatever he wanted to do next was to be the best vice president to Barack Obama he could ever be. And with, his, with this, his selection of Kamala Harris tells me that he felt confident that he would get that from her because I don't think he would have done it without, without that. And I think he could have gone in a, in a, in a direction that made less obvious political sense in order to have that governing partnership, and so he was cl- definitely convinced that that foundation of trust could exist between them.
0: Ie. Susan Rice, maybe.
1: It'd be very, exactly potentially yes.
0: So Senator Harris said something today during their rollout that I, I that really struck me, and I think really fits in with the kind of theme of your book, which is she said, "We don't just need a victory; we need a mandate." And I'm curious like what you think that means in terms of how they are probably approaching this campaign and what that looks like realistically um, from the inside of a campaign. I mean, obviously nobody knows until election day, but.
1: Yeah. I mean, mandate is a, is an interesting term that has sort of different meanings and, but what the way they're approaching from a campaign is that they are trying to win everywhere, right? Biden is, is airing ads in Texas, Georgia and Ohio right now. Right. They they and they have they have tremendous resources. People have been very generous. Uh, you know, they just had their I think they raised twenty six million dollars in the last day since since in the last 24 hours since Kamala Harris was announced. Um, so they have a lot of resources in there. They're not trying to win with 271 electoral votes. They're trying to win everywhere. But the it's less your total number. Right.
0: Because of Trump and his what the narrative around a close election in part,
1: yeah, it it is. I think you know people ask me all the time, "What are we going to do? Trump, is Trump going to contest the results?" And I always tell people, "Of course, he's going to contest the results. He contested the results in the election he won. So obviously, if he loses, he is going to do that." But and people, and, you know, so people ask me like, "Well, what can we do about this? What do you do?" And what I tell everyone is, "Let's just go try to win by in, as much as we can in as many places." To make it as hard as possible to credibly contest those results, and we'll figure out the rest of it on the back end. The mandate really is whether we get the Senate or not. Like that, whether if you get 350 electoral votes, we don't get the Senate, it does. Mitch McConnell does not care. He's not gonna feel any compulsion to pass a law or confirm one of your judges. But so it's largely that, like that's partially what investing in Georgia is about. That's what being aggressive in North Carolina is about. That is helping ensure that we have a strong top of the ticket in, sta- in states that will deliver the Senate to Joe Biden?
0: I mean, last time we spoke in, ugh, whenever, pre-COVID.
1: It was, it was right, it was right before.
0: Before, I think, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, you were like one of our last in-studio in guests. And I will have everybody know he arrived like 30 seconds before we went on the air. It was very smooth. But... <laughs> I mean, I think back then we were so, you know, everybody was talking about Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. I mean, there was not even, I just thought that, that, that Biden would be putting money into a state like Texas was like not even close. Now, when you look at the electoral map, I mean, is there, obviously- Biden still would need to win those places to get the presidency. But like, has the calculation changed? And I understand that polls are a snapshot and yada, yada, we're in August. But like what, when you look at the electoral map now compared to six months ago, has it shifted? Does it feel different?
1: Yeah, it, it absolutely feels different. You know, it it's always about how many different paths you have to 270, right? How, like what, how many, how many available states are there and how many of those states do you have to win? And Prior to COVID, it seemed very possible that Biden's only path was to flip Pennsylvania, Michigan, and either Wisconsin or Arizona. And that was it. And that is still almost certainly the most likely path. I mean, especially since Trump is actually, he has taken his adversi- advertising down in Pennsylvania and Michigan, uh, which is a pretty notable omission from him. But now he, you know, North, you know, Florida, which was seen by, a lot of people were saying that Biden should not compete in Florida. Florida is a lean Democrat state right now, according to some of the rankings. North Carolina was seem to be moving in the wrong direction, is now a toss-up state. Georgia, Texas is a toss-up state, according to NBC. Ohio and Iowa were thought to be written off uh, essentially the day after the 2016 election. And Biden is con- considering playing in Iowa and has some ads up in Ohio. Uh, so he's got all these paths. And that's actually more important now than ever before because – in a COVID election, you just don't know what's going to happen that could alter the results in a way that belies the public support you see in polls. Like, like what if they're, You know, what if you're relying on Wisconsin as your tipping point state, and there is and it becomes a COVID hotspot in October, and voting in person becomes very, very challenging, or you know, or they can't get enough poll workers, which is a very real concern, to have enough polling places in Milwaukee, right? like there are all these things going happen. So having additional paths by Trump is now in the place where all the eggs are in the Trump right now. If he, if he really is walking away from Ohio, from Pennsylvania and Michigan, he has to win. He has to hold Florida, hold North Carolina, hold Georgia, hold Texas. And then win uh, Wisconsin and Arizona, and that, is, that becomes, that's a challenging path. Now he had a challenging path in 16 and still won, but he, you know, he's, he had a lot of paths to 270, and that has narrowed significantly, uh, at least as we sit here today in August.
0: Yeah. So next week is the Democratic Convention, which was pushed back from last month. My first question is, like, is this the end of conventions, and why should I be sad?
1: I think it is the probably the end of conventions, um, and I'm not sure you should be sad. I mean, like, the model has been outdated for a very long time. You know, it sort of is a... You know, it's it's they're they're overly expensive endeavors. They are a real pain in the ass for the people whose city they are in. They are very hard to raise money for because you don't get a nominee until so, in some cases two months before the convention, and it's a bunch of corporate money, and that's a really stupid, terrible way to fund something. And so I imagine we will the next 2024 will look a lot more like this, and maybe it's just nominating speeches for the VP and the and the nominee and maybe a keynote or something like that. I think it, it's going to it's become a television show and not uh, a big event with thousands upon thousands of people.
0: Yeah. I, uh, I was at the 2016 one with my then five month old son and I would not recommend that. Although I did get to tweet a picture of Kamal holding him this week.
1: Well, there you go. See well, that think what that picture is worth now, especially if they win. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, well, let's talk about some of the stuff that is going to happen at the convention. And I have another audience question that was kind of on my list too. Um, Maybe a little more pointed than mine, but what is the plus of giving a platform at the DNT to, DNC to someone like John Kasich, former Ohio Republican Governor, whose anti-abortion views are totally against the party platform?
1: I sometimes I find myself in a position where I am I am now forced to argue someone else's position that I don't entirely agree with. So I I I don't I think it is I do not I understand why they're doing it. What the strategic reason why they're doing it is. They are trying to convince some number of Republicans it is okay to support Joe Biden. And you have a prominent Republican with a very powerful story. He's the son of a mail worker um, who was a Republican. He was a candidate for the Republican nomination four years ago who was going to tell other Republicans, including many of them in Ohio who voted for John Kasich many, many times, that it is okay to support Joe Biden. And in our highly polarized world where people's political identity – is one of, is their most important identity, even much above what even what they, the policies they believe in. It often takes someone from your group to tell you it's okay to go vote for someone out of your group, and so that's why they're doing it. I like I share all the sort of discomfort about it, and when you think about some of the really important voices in the party who are not speaking, and John Kasich is speaking, um, you know that's when it gets uncomfortable to me. But we also, in for Democrats to win elections in a Situation within electoral college in this country. We, we we need the votes of people who don't agree with us on every issue, um, and that is. And John Kasich is trying to. The Biden campaign wants John Kasich to try to help with that with that strategic objective.
0: Your former boss Barack Obama obviously kind of made his first big waves at a, a d- Democratic convention. There's often a spot reserved for a keynote for somebody who's kind of a rising star. This year, it doesn't really look like they're doing that. I mean, Michelle Obama is the keynote on Monday. You know, you have Pelosi. I want to ask you about our governor here in California in a minute. But do you think that that was a concerted decision or just a result of kind of the weird format?
1: Yeah, well, normally, yeah, normally, as you point out, there is a specific keynoter for the entire convention, and it was Barack Obama in 2004. It was Cory Booker in 2016. It was, I think, Mark Warner in 2008. The Mark Warner one? I don't know. He got to be senator, I guess. I mean it, w- it wasn't a speech that that you know changed this course of history like the Obama speech. It was uh, Julian Castro in 2012. Um, and it appears that that – because of the compressed – they're going from five hours to two hours here – Because of the compressed schedule, that is not happening this time. I'm waiting to hear – to see if anyone will be added who sort of fits. My understanding is the program's not completely complete, so there may be room for an exciting uh, young voice, and I I think they need that. I think it would be good for the party.
0: I mean it seems like it's pretty clear that they – the Obama showing up is also – a OK for most, like base Democrats, right? Yeah,
1: I mean they're the most popular political figures in America by a pretty large margin. So yes, they they are uh, uh, they they were quite in, quite in demand uh, and are very excited to go or speak since they're not going anywhere, I guess.
0: How about our governor Gavin Newsom? I, I thought that was interesting. I mean, obviously he's a, a big name in politics. Um, it's been a little rougher for him lately with COVID, uh, you know, and it's it's just like. California is getting more love, I guess, is what I would ask you about than I can remember ever. Right? I mean, Kamala's on the ticket. Pelosi obviously has the spot. Newsom is one of only a handful of speakers. Like, are, are is is the California um, vibe changing nationally at all?
1: Yeah, I think so. I, I you know. There, for, for such a long time, it was seen you – know, Democrats kind of ran away from the idea of California. It was only an ATM, right? We would just stop here, raise money, go to LA, raise money, come to the Bay Area, raise money, and then get out of town as fast as possible. And I think that is changing because, one, just you, you have a number of California politicians who have become quite prominent figures within the party. Obviously Pelosi has been there for a long time. You know, Newsom has been a high-profile figure for a long time. He's now the governor of a larger state. Now the vice presidential nominee, uh, Adam Schiff, just a whole host of people who have you know sort of risen who become very well known Democrats, and I also think a lot of the changes. California is on the leading edge of the cha- of the changes in the country that Democrats are trying to prepare for, and also California is. And I know Governor Newsom sort of loves this argument, but is the public policy lab for the Democrats right where you have Democratic control of government, you can. Uh, you know, we can run effective healthcare program or test out what effective healthcare programs or climate change initiatives look like. And while well, certainly lots of struggles here, both COVID-related and a host of other ones, but, you know, you got to just, there's a plethora of democratic talent here and it's sort of rising to the top at the same time.
0: We did have some primaries this week, which got lost in the shuffle a little bit. Was oh, the yeah. the News. Should we talk about Ilhan Omar yet or the QAnon candidate at first?
1: Uh, you pick. You're, you're in charge here. You pick. <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, so Ilhan Omar, who is part of the squad, one of some of the more left leaning uh Democrats in Congress, was challenged. Pelosi, you know, it was not necessarily like like I think some of the divisiveness that people expected in twenty eighteen among the Democratic caucus has not come to bear. Pelosi went and uh out there to campaign for her, I believe, or virtually campaign. But what what does that tell you? That you know, she's been such a target for especially for the right along with AOC and, and some of the other um, members of the squad. Like, does that tell you anything more broadly about the party? Or is that about the fact that she is a good retail politician who has those deep ties in her district?
1: I think for both Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, who won a primary last week, um, was also challenged. Uh, both are became... You know, they're good politicians who, in addition to becoming high profile names, in part because they they have responded well to efforts of demonization from the right, are also doing their jobs and representing their constituents. That's ultimately what these how you win these primaries, is you stay in touch with your district and the national stuff is slightly less relevant and you know it's what it like the 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 lack of divisiveness or the or maybe we should say this way the unity within the caucus is, is notable and and i think it's important that pelosi campaigned for her and supported her um and it's important for all the other like the the DCCC, the Democratic Caucus is a uh, incumbent protection operation, and they protect their uh, their own. and It was important for her to do that because um, it also sends a message that when Pelosi is backing the Elliot Engels or the Joe Crowley's or the Mike Capuano's or the uh, or or Lacy Clay, that that's about their incumbency and not their ideology. So for her to step out and also defend a you know a very progressive member of her caucus. I think that also helps deal with some of the potential tension down the line as there are more of these primary challenges in these very blue districts. As I
0: noted, there was on the very farther end of the spectrum here, um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is a QAnon supporter, um, one in Georgia, which might be for Democrats like the next Florida, I think, in terms of craziness. I'm more curious, like, since that is a safe Republican seat, like, how do you think – government handles, like the FBI has said QAnon is a possible domestic terrorist threat. Like if somebody who supports that gets elected to Congress, how do you think like just DC deals with that?
1: Well, I think the Republican party has a real choice right now because I think we are at a crossroads for the prevalence of QAnon within the Republican party and including among its elected members. And I think it was very, disconcerting to see Trump endorse her today and congratulate her via Twitter. And the Republicans could have tried to beat her. They could try to beat her now. They could di- they could disown her. They could kick her out of the caucus. They could do all these things, but they won't. And that's a, like I think that is very awesome. There was a very troubling article. I think it was in the Washington Post. Maybe it was yesterday. Maybe it was a week ago. Maybe it was 10 weeks ago. I don't really know anymore. But it, sometime between when I got locked in my house and now, the Washington Post had an article about how the Trump campaign has been courting QAnon. And so this is going to continue, and it is very reminiscent to me. Seeing Trump endorse this QAnon candidate made me, um, so made me think about how the Republicans stood silent when Trump started his birthers stuff against Obama. And you either speak out now or it ends up taking over. And so I do think there's a very real chance that because of Republican silence, they are sort of um, allowing QAnon into the tent before they know it. It's going to be a part of the party.
0: What could that do to the kind of like – because it does feel like, as much as I know someone like you, does not like Mitch McConnell. No. He is still more of a traditional politician, as are many of the senators compared to the House, where in both parties, to be fair, we tend to get more flamethrowers. And, I mean, does that like further drive a wedge between like those two caucuses, you think?
1: Uh, No, because I what I think – I mean – Maybe. But what I think what ultimately happens is what happened with the Tea Party and with the birthers and the Proud Boys is when you depend on a dim- a base of diminishing size, you become more permissive about who gets to be part of your party. And like, yeah, Mitch McConnell didn't like any of these Tea Party types who got elected in 2010, but he needed all of the votes of their voters. And so he stayed silent about it. And so, like, he, yeah, Mitch McConnell is not a QAnon guy, but he likes power, and if he feels like he needs QAnon to have power, then he will do that. And, like, it's a – it is – it may seem slightly painful to stand up to them now, but it's going to be really painful to try to do. It may be too painful to do down the road, and they, it's clear they haven't learned any of the lessons from – uh, sort of allowing the sort of this white nationalist movement to gain such control of their party that they could actually get the nomination in 2016.
0: Yeah. I thought it was interesting that Biden made such a point to talk about Charlottesville today. And I'm curious, I mean, do you think it should be a big part of this conversation? I mean, I think this is, you know, (laughs) in your book, you talk about Trumpism as defined by billionaire funded racial grievance politics. Um, Which yeah, which feels like a little bit like it doesn't make sense, but that's because it doesn't totally make sense, right?
1: (laughs) Right, right. I mean, ultimately, what you the Republicans are getting elected by running these racial grievance campaigns, and these large corporations are okay with it and paying for it because they want the tax cuts and the Supreme Court justices and the lack of regulations that come with it, and so you have this, uh, this like you have this merging of these two. What like for a long time we thought there'd be this. The Republican Party would splinter over the corporatists wall Street wing that was pro trade and the uh nat- the nationalist uh the immigrants and the terrorists who are all going to come kill us and take our jobs wing that those two could not coexist but then they found a way to coexist by the nomination of a very wealthy bigot um so the bigots I call them the bigots and the billionaires didn't were able to unite and like yeah, so I think that that you know th- this is this is the next part of that is they they need every day the Republicans need to win to get more blood from a, from a stone that is getting smaller to get elected and it allows and it forces them into these sort of dark alleys of the electorate.
0: Any thoughts about Kanye <sighs> uh,
1: I can't yet decide whether this is my motto for 2020 is worry about everything panic about nothing. So I would say yes, I'm worried about Kanye. I haven't decided. To what degree yet? Um, You know, there was this uh, morning consult poll that came out today that said that only 2% of black voters supported Kanye. And the headline was like, only 2%. Everyone's like dunking on Kanye for only having 2%. And I was like, 2% seems really damn high to me. And we can't lose 2% of the black vote uh, and still win in a lot of these states. I think the question, like, one, we don't know what ballots he's actually going to be on. Is he going to stay on the Wisconsin ballot? We don't know. That's the one that matters the most. Um but then when you sort of take a step back, you're like, how many how many people were sitting here three weeks ago and planning to vote for Joe Biden? Up until they've heard out that Kanye was an option and now they're gonna vote for Kanye instead of Joe Biden. I have not yet seen any research that suggested that is a significant number. Um but I think it's something that we ought to watch and it's not it's not unconcerning at all that Kanye and Jared Kushner met very recently to talk about his campaign. That seems I do think it is the most Jared Kushner Trump thing ever, which is just like Captain Obvious but think they're super smart. It would be we have a – if Joe Biden does well with black voters, we will lose. Therefore, we should get a rapper to run on the ballot. Like that's just like – that seems like what a dumb racist would come up with as a strategy and this is sort of – that's how you get there.
0: Well, I mean, to your point, it, it may not just be the Democrats should be worried about people that are switching votes, but people who may not, who, you know, who Biden might have the ability to get out to vote, yeah. right? Right. Um, yeah, It's it's... It's strange to watch and kind of confusing as, as someone from my position to, to sort out yes. in the same way. Yes. Like, yes. should we be taking Should we be talking about this? Should we not be talking about this? I don't know.
1: Yeah. I'm actually been surprised how little attention it's gotten, you know, like in a, which speaks to how serious everything else is in the world. If this were a normal campaign and a very, very famous rapper married to a Kardashian got in the race, it would dominate coverage sort of like Trump getting in the race in 16, but it's like, it gets covered and probably maybe certainly more so than our, another person running on it, like an unknown person running, but it's not like you can see, you can see just how like the, the changing context around how serious the world is, has limited sort of the celebrity clickbait chasing that, you know, you sometimes see like particularly on cable news around stuff like this.
0: Yeah, I know there's uh Twitter's pushing it hard, I've noticed. And like
1: Yes, yes, of course. Yeah.
0: So let's get into your book a little bit. I mean, you talk a lot in the book about how the GOP has, in your mind, kinda of gamed the system, redistricting, judicial appointments, voter suppression. I wanna kinda of look forward. I mean, let's say Biden wins. What are the steps that you think Democrats need to take to push back, you know, against some of what McConnell has been successful in doing, I would say, not just over the last four years, but really even under Obama as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I I think the very first thing that the – let's so we're going to presume Joe Biden won and the Democrats took the Senate, right? So the very first thing that the Senate should do is they should abolish the filibuster because if we – there's nothing that we, we want to get done that – requires nine republican senators that will be worth doing right that you can get nine republican senators to agree to and so we're going to abolish the filibuster and then we're going to pass a giant democratic reform bill named after john lewis as barack obama mentioned at the eulogy uh, a couple weeks ago and in that would be you would you would reinstate the voting rights act that was gutted by john roberts you would put in prohibitions not just against um Gerrymandering, gerrymandering along racial lines, but wrong partisan lines, um, which is something you need to put on. You need to put in there because the Supreme Court uh, gutted that uh, late last year. You would uh, put. You would make DC a state if the people of Puerto Rico would like to be decided. They want to become a state. You would do it. Do that then as well. You would, and I would. No one else will agree to agree with me on this, but, or at least not Joe Biden, but I would also uh, include in that a package of judicial reforms that would expand the lower courts. It would expand the Supreme Court by two seats. It would put in place – requires Supreme Court Supreme Court justices to adhere to a code of conduct and ethics, which they currently do not do. Um, so we should be able to know more about conflicts of interest and other sorts of activity and uh, you would put in place a you probably can't do term limits for constitutional reasons but there there some some legal scholars believe that you can put in place a system of seniority where supreme court justices rotate off the bench but they have senior status so they maintain their appointment and then are brought in when there's a vacancy on the court or there's uh you know, with only nine justices, whenever a justice has to recuse themselves because they were involved in a case beforehand, then you get a you only get eight justices and you get a split decision um, if it's closed. And so, I think you like I think that's the very first thing you should do with this giant package that really makes it easier. And I would I would what a couple of things I'm including that as well is automatic voter registration for everyone as soon as they turn 18, and election day a holiday um, and a massive upgrade of the FEC including um, making it so that it has an odd number of members so it isn't deadlocked on every single issue all of the time um, to ensure that we're gonna put new rules in place and we're gonna make sure that someone enforces them
0: how many of those things you know even with the Democratic Senate and Congress do you think would be challenging I mean you know firsthand like there's a limited amount of p- political capital for a new president. Yeah. You know, there's immigration. There, like, go down the list of po- big policy. You know, healthcare that Democrats are kind of salivating to jump at. A lot of the stuff you're talking about, quite frankly, is super important, but like, kind of boring to some people. Like, yeah. like, what do you think would be the political challenges, even with a Democratic, you know, DC across the board?
1: Well, I think uh, I'm actually relatively optimistic on about sixty percent of what I just said. In part because that's exactly what the Democratic House did when they took power in 2018. The very first bill they passed was HR1, this which did a lot of reinstate the Voting Rights Act, did a whole make election day a holiday, did a whole bunch of things. The, like what I talked about goes beyond that. But since that time, the House voted overwhelmingly to make DC a state. Almost every Senate Democrat has now co-sponsored that bill. Joe Biden has pledged to do it. So I think a lot of those things will happen, I think, People will, you know, and I think Nancy Pelosi in particular in the House will take it very seriously to honor the legacy of John Lewis by moving that bill. It won't have everything that I want in there. Like there's a lot of political work to do to convince Democrats about the need to embrace reforming the courts. But I think on the voting rights stuff and the gerrymandering stuff, I think the party is there. And I do, you know, and Biden has pledged that this would be one of the first things he did. And I, so I think that. I am optimistic that a large chunk of the democratic reform stuff could be one of the first bills that pass. It's good. Look, it's going to be hard. It, it, like, in addition to just the long wish list of deferred things like healthcare and climate change, you know, Congress has been unable to agree on a COVID relief package. There's a whole bunch of people who have been kicked off their unemployment, who are uh, facing eviction, small businesses that are suffering. So, there is also going to be this huge imperative to you know, pass a massive um, COVID economic relief bill very, very early in the process, too. And so it's like n- nothing will be easy. And I know from working with Obama when he had to pass the Recovery Act at the beginning, it takes a bunch of your political capital right away to get people to vote for something that's going to be, for in Biden's case, probably in excess of two to three trillion dollars.
0: COVID. How. <laughs> Um, I was going to go to like gerrymandering but I I do I mean I do think that this is a really interesting question which is the sort of political interplay of not just the relief package we're talking about the push for a vaccine from the Trump campaign um you know the fact that it it, it, it does really feel like there's been and I don't think this is a partisan comment, but the, so the Trump administration has really left a lot up to the states. There's not been a national strategy or a lot of national leadership. And so it seems to me that even if Biden gets elected, he's going to need a couple months to get his feet under him. Um, by then, we're a year into this pandemic. I mean, yeah. what do you think they need to be talking about in terms of specifics? Because one of the things that's so dismaying for me is just how political this like, uh, public health issue has become that, you know, we're fighting about masks and schools and stuff instead of like how how do we actually solve this?
1: Well, I think I mean Biden has has talked about a lot of this stuff, but he needs to be like he Biden, Joe Biden is going to be if he wins the election. He, even though he won't be sworn in until January, he's going to become de facto president the second this election is resolved. No, I don't suspect the election will be resolved on election night, but once he has declared the winner, and this happened to Obama in two thousand eight, like. In that normal transition period, and I, I ran communications to that transition, you're like announcing cabinet secretaries, and you're figuring out how or who sits in what office, and you're planning your first hundred days. And Obama was basically forced to be president because Bush was checked out and was Bush had no, you know, he had 28 percent approval rating, and no one cared what he had to say. And him pushing for to help get the finan- the efforts to get the financial crisis under control were counterproductive, and so. Obama was lobbying for TARP 2 because no one else could get it done when he was two weeks after the election, and Biden's going to be in a similar situation. So they're going to have to have these two tracks of one where you're trying to win the election, another one where you are preparing for exactly the things you're going to start doing right away, even before you get in office, because you're, you're going to want to try to get that COVID economic bill headed through Congress, even if it doesn't get passed into until after you're sworn in but move like you don't want them to start working on that on january 21st you want to start working on it in december right
0: yeah but to your point like (laughs) this election will not be decided on election night um unless i mean even if even if the presidential election was i mean the odds of the senate i mean and you know let's not even talk about local races or ballot measures but how, how do you think folks like me need to be talking about this to prepare the public for that. Because I, I think that there's a real responsibility for any of us really, who are out there talking to, to explain ahead of time. And, to, and I think to manage expectations in this like immediate world we're in.
1: Yeah. I like, I think this is really, really important. And it's going to be very hard to do. You know, we have to start ta- stop talking about election night is when we're going to know that it's going to be weeks. And I think the more we can do to explain. Explain to people how votes are counted over time. And all of us, right, whether you're a journalist or a political commentator like myself, we have to resist making judgments on election night about what's going to happen, right? Like there was the so much discussion about how the Democrats couldn't win in Orange County in a wave election in the in the hours after the polls close and even the next day only to then find out to have to win all of those races right you know we i did a podcast you know in the morning after the election and we we spent some time talking about why uh kirsten cinema couldn't beat martha McSally in arizona because that's what that looked like at that time I mean, that that didn't age well for us um so don't make snap judgments about who won we you know what won or lost but i think explaining to the public what is likely to happen in advance because As it looks right now, in part because of Donald Trump's rhetoric, Democrats are going to vote by mail at a massive advantage over Republicans. So like this is sort of the nightmare scenario for democracy is Donald Trump is up on election night, but there is still 50 to 60 percent of the ballots outstanding. And every day that lead gets smaller and smaller and smaller, and then Joe Biden passes him. And when you have – that would be a tough situation when you had people operating in good faith, and I don't have a lot of imagine. I don't really imagine that Donald Trump's gonna be at operating in good faith in that and making accusations. So at least trying to explain to people, uh, and California is a great example of how this works, um, about how the vote count, you know, how they're counted, how how mail balloting works, and how that can change the results over time because of who tends to vote. But like we know a lot if you're a real election observer about. Uh, You know, watching a Florida race and it's like, well, they haven't called in Broward and Dade County yet. It's like that. Well, that means the Democrats still has a chance or they haven't called in Madison, Wisconsin or whatever it is. But like mail balloting is a little more confusing. The other thing is we have to stop in media reporting talking about percent of precincts reported and start talking about percent of votes. Because the pre- the precinct thing is very, very, very confusing and uh, quite misleading to a lot of people. And that's going to be a much bigger problem in a mail ballot sort of situation.
0: Seems like it would be good if registrars stop putting that as like the top line yes. on their return. Yes, Yes, that's,
1: this is not a media problem. This is a secretary of state and local election official problem.
0: Yeah. Okay, I do want to talk a little bit about election stuff again. But I, there's an audience question that's kind of... Related here, which is the idea of sort of educating folks, which is in your book, you talk about the importance of us being vocal on social media. And this member of the audience wants to know if there are recommended sources to find infographics, sound bites, kind of ways to catch people's attention, but also be, you know, truthful. <laughs>
1: Yes. Well, Vote Save America has a bunch of stuff. VoteSaveAmerica.com is the election website that Curriculum Media set up where you can adopt six states, and we have a lot of specific infographics for those states. We try to create a lot of the, if you follow Pod Save America or Cricket Media on social media, that's one of the things that our teams do is try to come up with easily shareable videos or um, graphics to help explain things and communicate issues. and ways that we believe are politically persuasive based on our either research we've seen or our political experience. So follow our stuff would be my, would be my answer. Um, the, you know, the Biden, vote, save com. Oh, my state is North Carolina. I adopted North Carolina. It, it is very important. And, uh, I, just, I, like I said, I just did a fundraiser for Cal Cunningham. who's running for Senate there right before this. So I am, I am fully in and it doesn't, it doesn't hurt that my wife, uh, worked for Barack Obama in North Carolina in 2008. So we are in as a family, and she's very aggressively uh, pitching me out to do fundraisers for everyone in North Carolina who's possibly running for office. So,
0: And your daughter, is she, like, getting involved yet, or is it a lawyer?
1: Yes, she uh, – She. my wife taught her to say we have to win North Carolina, so she just says it randomly all the time. Uh, and then she, she also said, like, when we don't do – like, we're not one of those families who, like – makes her look at the TV and say that Trump is bad or anything. We sort of just sort of keep that stuff from her, but she's, she is incredible. She's two years old for folks. Uh, but she's just, she listens to everything. And she told me while I was, she was sitting on a, this is like such a dad thing, but I was sitting on the bath side of the bathtub and she was sitting on a toilet shape like Elmo. And she looked at me and said, data, we Joe Biden's going to be the new president. Don't know where that came from, uh, but I will take it. I would take it as a more that maybe she's better at political prognostication than I am. So maybe it's maybe it's maybe it's prescient.
0: I feel like it really speaks to how kids absorb everything. Um, everything. My kids. I shouldn't probably say this publicly, but sometimes like to slick back their hair and say, "We're Gavin
1: Newsom." So. <laughs> Gavin knew someone probably like that. Yes. Yeah, I
0: don't know if Gavin would like that. But <laughs> so we have a couple minutes left. I I do want to ask you, kind of in the context of some of the stuff you laid out in your book, in terms of Democrats changing policy, but also in terms of this election and, and election security, which is a lot of, I think. Both the strength of American elections and some of its weaknesses are the fact that it is controlled at such a local level, right? Um, And redistricting is controlled at the state level. Uh, You know, just a, a registrar from county to county can have a totally different way of operating. How, in that context, are you thinking about both this election and ensuring that people, you know, can go to the polls and vote fairly, but also to do the things that you want to see happen nationally, um, given just how devolved the power is?
1: Yeah, I, I think we need to set like is, it. It is a huge problem for this country that you how much access you have democracy depends on where you live, right? And if you live in California. Uh, you have election officials who are trying to make it easier for you to vote, not only successfully but that they are trying and If you are living in the south and particularly if you're you live in a uh, in a black a majority black community in the south, you have election officials who are trying the exact opposite right If you live in Texas and you live in a majority minority community, you have seen they 've been closing your polling places at a, a at a alarming clip for years and so we need to set i understand it 's not in the American Psyche to have nationally administered elections, but we should have a minimum of how things work, right? A minimum number of machines per um, per capita within a community. We need to have increase a whole bunch of you know vote, vote by mail, early vote, all these options. And we used to have at least Justice Department: if you were a state that had a history of racially biased voting policies, you cannot implement a new policy. Uh, without clearance from the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department. That was the consequence of the Voting Rights Act. Then John Roberts decided that racism was over in America, and he gutted the Voting Rights Act, and we need to put back in at least that. We need minimum standards for uh, voting in this country because it is it, we are disenfranchising huge parts of our population. 40% of Americans do not vote, and American politics and American life would look a lot different if 100% of Americans were making decisions instead of
0: 60%. What do you think people should be doing in terms of, you know, we've got COVID, people don't want to go to the polls necessarily, yeah. but then we have a postal system that is apparently purposely slowing down the mail, maybe because of this election. Um I mean, personally, like, the way I always vote, because I'm a weirdo, is I get my absentee ballot, and then I, like, hold it and love it and, you know, really spend some time with it, and then I drop it off at the polling place. Yeah. Like, is that the best way to guarantee your vote is counted this year?
1: So... This is like we've been getting asked this question a lot since the post office started delaying the mail and a vote by mail election after the uh, a Trump megadonor was became the postmaster general, and it, it totally differs by state. Like my view is, if you if you live in a state where early voting is possible, in person early voting is possible, and you feel like you can do that safely because of your own health situation, the crowd at the spot in your state, whether you you know your exposure to you know whether you have older people living in your home or people who have comorbidities or whatever it is that's probably the safest way to vote equally safe is if you live in a state where you can fill out your mail ballot and drop it off either a drop box or an early voting location or the registrar's office or any of the on election day or prior that is great i p, many people will vote by mail and they're in they are very they are wise to do so given the risks of being in in public you know and my, what I would say to people is if you, if you want to vote by mail, request your mail ballot as soon as you possibly can. You can do that now in most states. If you go to votesaveamerica.com, we will show you how to do that for your state and, re, and turn it in as soon as po- – mail it back as soon as possible because there were tens of thousands of people in the most recent Florida primary who ma- whose votes were not counted because they mailed their ballot before Election Day. It was postmarked before Election Day, but it arrived after Election Day. And now in some states like California, your ballot – as long as it's postmarked, you're fine. But in many states, particularly the battleground states inside this election, the Republicans have given in on a lot of voting by mail where they've drawn the line at um, at ballots arriving after Election Day. And you do – and in a normal world, if you mailed your ballot seven days beforehand, you would have great confidence that it would get there. And I don't think you can have that confidence now. So if you're going to vote by mail – turn it in, like get it, fill it out and mail it the next day. In some states, we'll let you track it um, to see if it has arrived. And I would recommend doing that because if it does not arrive, you can go if you want to on election day and fill out a provisional ballot.
0: You don't think there's any reason, like I've had a debate with some friends over like, you know, voting too early. Like, what if things change? What about that? You know.
1: Yeah, I mean that's – like in a primary, a lot of people got burnt on that in the primary, particularly in California because you got your mail ballot. You were super excited to vote for Pete Buttigieg, and he was no longer in the race by the time Super Tuesday came or – you know, or Cory Booker, right? Like you dropped out. People may have voted for him, and he dropped out before that but remained on a lot of ballots. That seems to be less of a problem in the general election, and you're – there are deadlines about when ballots would have to be reprinted by um, – so, like, I think is a. It seems to me to be a low probability that you would cash your vote for Joe Biden three weeks early, and then Joe Biden would not be on the ticket. Then, like, we have a whole host of other problems if that happened. Um, so, I would, if you're managing risk, I would uh, certainly, I would just mail it in as soon as you as soon as you possibly can to ensure it gets there.
0: All right, we only have time for about one last question. Um, yep. This is a bit of a random one, but it's been sitting here for a while, so I'll give it to you from an audience member. Okay. Is Bill Barr Trump's most capable and, to this person, most dangerous cabinet secretary?
1: Oh, yes, by far. He is a deeply, deeply dangerous person. He Bill Barr is what happens when otherwise smart people watch too much Fox News because he, his brain has been completely pickled and we and believes all these conspiracy theories and a whole bunch of other things but he has been a very he has like he has politicized the justice department in in ways that would make richard nixon blush and uh and it is very very worrisome and it is a huge one one more reason why joe biden has to win this election because if we have four more years of bill barr he's going to start locking up uh, Donald Trump's uh, political opponents, and I'm actually not, and I actually don't think Bill Barr is done yet. I fully expect the Democrats should be prepared for some sort of October surprise that Bill Barr is involved in, whether that is, you know, he's got this Durham report that is going looking into the origins of the Russia investigation. He could conjure up a, an investigation into a prominent Democrat, like Bill Barr is, Bill Barr is bad. So yes, I agree with that. All
0: right. We'll leave it there. All right. Thank you, Dan Pfeiffer. He is author of the relatively new book, on Trumping America. We appreciate you joining us today.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It was fun as always.
0: We'd like to thank our audience for watching and participating live. And if you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org online. I'm Marisa Lagos. Thank you and stay safe.
1: You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California.